0: Good morning, Calvary. I invite you to stand as you're able as I read today from God's word taken from Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34, which can be found on page 811 of the Pew Bible. These are Jesus' words for you. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The word of the Lord.
1: Be to God. Thanks, Desiree. Good morning, everybody. How are you all doing? want to uh, underscore uh, one of the announcements from this morning. Pastor Greg mentioned it. We've been talking about it for a bit of the worship and prayer night tonight. So if you're free tonight and able uh, to join us, we'd love to have you here. I'm going to be here uh, this evening as well. If you like worship and you like prayer, you, know, you put those together. It's like a Reese's peanut butter cup, you know, chocolate and peanut butter. I mean, it's perfect. So, uh, But hope you're able to be here uh, the encouragement uh, time tonight. So, uh, We're continuing our sermon series on joy this morning, the joy set before us. And the punchline of the sermon series is that Jesus is the joy that has been set before us. And the aim of the series is to figure out how we can grow in our capacity to experience more of Jesus and then more of joy. So we've been looking at some of the key means of accessing joy. That's kind of what the sermon series is about. And so this morning we look at another key means of accessing joy, and that is living under the fatherly care of God. We've got a fair bit of ground to cover this morning Uh, So we're going to actually get into Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, which uh, we didn't read, would have been taken too long. So I'm not going to give a long introduction. We're going to look at Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and how God intended us to live under his fatherly care, what went wrong, and then how Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, talks about us being brought back into God's fatherly care. And so uh, the word joy doesn't show up in either a passage, but the, the building blocks, the framework for joy uh, exist in these passages. So I want to work through these passages, and then in the conclusion I'm going to tie it in uh, to our theme of joy. So without any further ado, back to Eden and Genesis uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3. So turn in your Bibles uh, back to the very beginning there, if you would. And uh, as you're turning their, your way there, let me just uh, make a couple comments about Genesis um, 1, 2, and 3. The opening chapters of Genesis are so theologically rich. They're so primordially helpful in understanding the basic building blocks of all human knowledge. And maybe that's a rather bold uh, and grandiose statement, but I think it's true. And God's intent in giving us these chapters here, these early chapters is not primarily to satisfy our curiosity about scientifically how God made the world, the mechanics of creation, but rather to reveal to us some core and profound and timeless truths about who God is in relationship to the world, who He is in relationship to us, who we are in relationship to the world, and who we are in relationship to God. And all the most important questions about human identity and human purpose can be answered from these chapters, even if only in seminal forms. So this is super important chapter. So as we work through these chapters here this morning, I want us to think about the deeper anthropological and, and theological meanings that are woven into these narratives, or this narrative here in Genesis one through three. And if you're not a Christian this morning, that's okay. Uh, just let me encourage you to try the story on for size, as it were. See if the way that Genesis frames up the human condition makes sense to your lived experience. I preached on these chapters back at the very beginning of the All Things New sermon series, which gets now a couple of years ago. So maybe some of this will be familiar, but I want to move through these passages. We're not going to take time to read it. Uh, It would be too long. And uh, my daughter came up to me after the sermon last week and was complaining about how long the sermon reading was. And uh, this would take three times as long. I won't say which daughter it was. Uh, Her name starts with an E and rhymes with Jella. And you can see if you can figure that out uh, yourself. Um, But in Genesis chapter 1 here... We read that the world is made beautiful and good. So in the beginning, Genesis 1, 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we move all the way through Genesis chapter 1. We get to the very end of Genesis chapter 1, which is a summary of God's creative activity. And in verse 31, last verse of chapter 1, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So God makes this beautiful, good world. And uh, it's glorious, but it's still in its raw form. And we can pick that up from a number of places uh, throughout our text. But the world still needs subduing. It still needs ordering. And so I picture it a little bit like a brand new puppy, right? Delightful, active, and needing some guidance, right? That's like what the world is like here. So in chapter 2, God creates Adam and Eve as his royal priests, and he places them in the garden sanctuary of Eden. And he breathes into them the breath of life and he gives them a twofold task in relation to this world that he has made. They are to fill the earth and they are to have dominion over the earth and to subdue it. Fill the earth and subdue it. So they're to procreate and grow the human family. And then as humanity spreads out into the world, they're to bring order and rule to the teeming beauty that is the good world that God has made. And the garden sanctuary of Eden into which they're placed is humanity's home base. It's the place from which Adam and Eve are to launch out in their mission in the world. So I want to spend some time reflecting on the significance of Eden and what this means for them and their mission. I want us to note especially how the garden is the means by which God provides for and takes care of Adam and Eve. So look here in chapter 2 of Genesis, 2 verses 8 through 10. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And river and a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. So God here puts Adam and Eve in this garden that is within the midst of the land of Eden, And within this garden, fruit trees grow that are producing all of the food that will be needed for Adam and Eve. And a river bubbles up from the ground here in the center of the garden, providing all of the liquid, water they will need. And from that, it goes out into all the reaches of the earth. So what more then could Adam and Eve ask for? They have everything they need. They are completely taken care of here in the garden. They don't have to work for any. Their food, they don't have to cultivate the earth, it all just grows on its own. Imagine how carefree that would be! You just wake up in the morning, kind of yawn a little bit, wander over to the nearest tree, grab your breakfast. The stream is right there, satisfying your thirst. It's a everything is there for the taking. This is the definition of paradise, and since God has seen. To all of their needs, they can now focus their energies on doing the task to which they've been called, which is going out and bringing a blessing to the world. So Genesis 1 and 2 is giving us a beautiful picture of the synergistic relationship between God, humanity, and the world. God pours out the blessing of life into humanity so that humanity, being filled with life, can go and pour themselves out and bring a blessing to the world. But then we get to chapter 3, and in chapter 3, they throw it all away. Not content with their royal priestly lot, Adam and Eve reach beyond their station in life. They sin, and they cut themselves off from the life of God, and in breaking themselves, they break the link between God And the world. And so God comes down into the sanctuary and he doles out a couple of consequences, both of which correspond to humanity's mission in the world. From now on, childbearing will be painful. Each new birthing of the divine breath out into the world will necessarily involve sacrifice and pain. And suffering. And second, Adam and Eve will now have to work the ground in order to supply their own needs. They're removed from the garden, they're cast out east of Eden, and they now have to work the fields and supply their own needs. And the curse of eating from the ground is not just that they're gonna to have to deal with thorns and thistles. That's true. Nor is the curse of eating from the ground is that it's simply going to be harder. The curse of eating from the ground is that they are now going to have to supply their own food. No longer is the food given to them freely by God in the garden. They're going to have to now go out, live outside the garden and supply their own food. But it's worse than that. It's much worse than that, in fact. Because despite their best desperate efforts to take life from the world, all of this scraping of the earth will only end in death anyway. Eating the food that they can supply for themselves will just be a slow way of starving to death. Because the plants of the field were never meant to satisfy humanity's needs. There's a deep irony here. Adam and Eve were ordained by God to extend a blessing to the world. But now they have been cast out into the world, and the world that they were meant to bring a blessing to, they're now trying to take a blessing from. But it's all an exercise in futility, because no matter what they take from the world, none of it can keep them alive. Cast out of Eden, the great curse of sin is that Adam and Eve now have to provide for themselves and they can't. Cast out of Eden, Adam and Eve now have to provide for themselves and they can't. And This is the great plight into which every human being has been born since. We enter the world born east of Eden, cut off from the provision of the garden and God. And we have to fend for ourselves and supply our own food. But no matter how strenuously we till the soils of the world, no matter how much bread we prepare for ourselves, it's all an exercise in futility. And that's the whole message of the Bible as it relates to sin and death and the futility of human effort. No matter what food we produce for ourselves, no matter what monuments we build in our name, no matter how big our families, no matter how much we self-protect, no matter our most earnest strivings and our best laid plans, the best we can manage is to starve ourselves to death more slowly. We exert all of our energy cultivating the fields of the world in order to take care of ourselves but even as we eat what our hands have produced we know it's not enough. It's never enough. Do you feel the anxiety of that? I know when I was writing the sermon this week and I was just reflecting on humanity's lot in life cast out of the garden trying to feed ourselves as we die. It's all so futile. And all that futile striving leads to anxiety and despairing lives. And it should. Because anxiety arises from an awareness of a perceived threat, or the real or imagined. So say I'm a little kid, and I see a dark shadow in the corner of my room, and I perceive it as a monster. It's a threat. And so my autonomic nervous system kicks in, adrenaline floods my body, and I feel anxious. My alarm bells start going off. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger, Will Robinson. I get ready for flight or fight or freeze, or in this case, I call out to my mom. So my mom comes into my room and turns on the light, and I see that the dark shadow in the corner is actually not a monster. It's really just a crumpled old blanket that I didn't pick up and left on the floor. So my autonomic nervous system chills out, the adrenaline drains from my body, and my anxiety subsides. But what happens if you think the dark shadow in the corner of the room is the monster of futility and death, and when your mom comes in and turns on the light, it turns out that it really is the monster of futility and death. Your anxiety doesn't go away, it only intensifies. And that's where the world finds itself when God walks into the room and turns the light on. We find ourselves outside the garden, fending for ourselves in a world of thorns and thistles. And the best we can do is raise crops that can't keep us alive. And when we come face to face with that reality, it can be quite terrifying. Here's a poem from uh, Stephen Crane, who was a 19th century writer. Maybe some of you know Stephen Crane. He wrote The Red Badge of Courage. He was also a poet and a very uh, morose and unhappy poet. So if you like morose and unhappy poetry, I commend to you Stephen Crane. But he knows the terrors of the light. Listen to what he writes. He says, I was in the darkness. I could not see my words nor the wishes of my heart. Then suddenly there was a great light. Let me into the darkness again, he writes. Because sometimes it's just better to turn the light back off and tell yourself what you need to hear. And isn't that how we get through a lot of our lives? We deny the reality of death, the futility of our own best efforts, and we keep screaming, scurrying around the world, laboring in the fields, trying to produce food for ourselves. But despite our willful denial, our best efforts are never enough. And we can't shake that sense of pending doom that hovers over our lives. We live with a constant sense of the threat because we really are threatened. And that's no way to live. God have mercy. And God did have mercy, thank God. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promises a deliverer who will one day arise, who would return humanity back to Eden and the free provision of God. So now we fast forward in our story of the Bible all the way to Matthew chapter 6, which has been read for us. So turn there to Matthew chapter 6. Living outside of Eden bereft of God's provision. That's a cause for real anxiety. It's why the world lives with anxiety. And God knows this, and that's why he sent Jesus, because in Jesus, God is essentially offering us a way back into the garden. So we're dropping down in the middle of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, and we're picking it up in the middle here at verse 25, and Jesus is telling his followers that they don't need to be anxious about the necessities of life, what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, what they're going to wear. Take a lesson from the birds, he says. They don't sow or reap, yet the Heavenly Father feeds them all the same. They have all of they need, all they need, even though they're not working for any of it. They're not building barns to store up their food to protect themselves. Or, he says, in verse 28, consider the lilies of the field. They don't... They don't toil or spin in order to provide clothes for themselves and yet not even solomon the richest and most opulent king of the old testament yet not even solomon all of his splendor was dressed as well as these are so don't be anxious jesus says saying what shall we eat what shall we drink or what shall we wear if god takes care of the birds and takes care of the flowers how much more will he take care of you The Gentiles, who don't know the care of their gracious Heavenly Father, they spend their whole lives running around, trying to take care of themselves, trying to supply their own needs. But you don't need to do that, Jesus is saying. Your Heavenly Father knows what you need. And when Jesus says, you don't need to worry about your needs, He's not saying Don't worry about your needs because your needs aren't important. That's the stoic route, right? The I'll deny the necessity of those needs and then I won't have to worry about them anymore. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying you don't need to worry about your needs because they're not important. He's saying you don't need to worry about your needs because God is worrying about your needs. I mean, someone needs to worry about your needs, but that's not your job. That's God's job. God's gonna take care of your needs you seek first the kingdom of God and bringing his blessing out into the world because God is worrying about your needs and he is providing for you and he's taking care of you. So do you see how this is a return to Eden? Jesus is saying, listen, now that I have come and I am ushering in the kingdom of God, now that I am reconnecting humanity back to the life of God that was lost in the garden, You no longer have to spend all of your days in anxious toil out in the fields of the world, vainly trying to supply your own needs. God is your Father, and He knows what you need, and He will take care of you. And you were never intended to take care of yourself. From the very beginning in the garden, we were never intended to take care of ourselves. Having to take care of ourselves is the result of our rebellion against God. You don't have to take care of yourself. And because God is paying attention to all of your needs, because he's taking care of you, you are freed up to get after his mission in the world. The provision of life that was lost in Eden comes back to us in Jesus. And this is such good news. As as I was reflecting on this and writing the sermon, I was trying to think about like what gets in the way of receiving this as the good news that it is. Why does this not comfort us sometimes in the ways that Jesus intends it to comfort us, that God intends it to comfort us? So I was thinking about it in my own life. Like what are the things that get in the way of me receiving this as good news? And I thought of two reasons. Maybe these resonate with you uh, and so I I offer them here. But I, I think I've tended to think that God's promise to care for my needs only applies to my real needs. Like, my real needs. So, like, if I was starving in the desert, then this would start to apply, right? But, like, just moving through 2022 in Oak Park, I don't ever really encounter real needs, and so this doesn't really apply. But the problem is that so many of the things that I'm anxious about in life are my not real needs in my mind. And so I've tended to take this scripture and just kind of bracket it off, and I just move through life stressed and anxious about all the things that I think of that don't qualify as real needs. So for instance, one time my transmission went out on my car shortly after I had bought it. I had saved up all my nickels and my dimes for a couple of years, and then I came into some family money, and I thought, you know, I keep spending all this money repairing my old car. I'm going to buy myself a new used car, and I won't have to worry about all these car repairs. So I buy this new car and within less than a year the transmission went out. And I got to tell you I had a little bit of anxiety about that. Because I had I had some money saved up for minor car repairs, but I didn't have fixed the transmission money saved up for car repairs. That's why I had bought the car to begin with. Right? So I'm having a little bit of a pity party for myself after I've lost the transmission and I'm stressing about it to the Lord. And it was like he put his hand around my shoulders and he just simply said to me, I'm taking care of you. Be at peace. I'm taking care of you. Like I see this, I'm taking care of you. And I didn't take him to mean that my transmission would be miraculously fixed because it wasn't. Or that someone was going to swoop in and pay for it because no one did. But I took him to mean exactly what he meant. That I didn't have to worry Because he was taking care of me. Not just my car in that moment, but my whole life. And it moves me still, not because I wanted my car fixed, because my car is such a big deal to me, but it moves me because he was saying he was taking care of me. I heard that. And it's so comforting to know that God is taking care of us. That he knows what we need, and that he makes sure we're not going to be left out in the cold. And I've come increasingly to see that God's promise of provision and care extends to everything in our lives. Not just the real big needs, but everything in our lives. This is why the Apostle Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5-7 that we should cast all of our anxieties upon the Lord. Why? Because He cares for us. He cares for our anxieties. All those places of anxiety in our lives. Those are the places where we're feeling our need the most, the places where we feel exposed, vulnerable, threatened. So maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's the sort of things that if others looked in your life, they would be like, yeah, that's a real need. I understand why you're anxious about that. But maybe it's the sort of things with people within your life that'd be like, why are you anxious about that? It doesn't make any sense that you're anxious about that. It's your own little things that you're anxious about. If you're anxious about it, it's because it's tapping into your exposed neediness. And God cares about that. He's not indifferent to it. You don't even really need to understand why certain things make you feel threatened and anxious for God to care about it. God sees your vulnerability and your need better than you do, and he cares about it, and he promises that he is taking care of you. Now, I know anxiety can be complex, and if you've listened to my sermons over the past six or seven months, you know that I know that. And I've experienced it, so I'm not trying to wave a magic spiritual wand you know, over all of our problems, But imagine for a moment, just imagine, if we really believed what Jesus said, that we really didn't have to take care of ourselves, and that God was taking care of us. Think about that one place in your life that causes you anxiety. I mean, you know it maybe better than anyone else knows it. That one thing in your life, maybe you got a couple of things, but think about that one thing in your life that causes you the most anxiety. That one place where you feel your vulnerability most acutely. Maybe it's in your physical needs, but maybe it's a relational or psychological need your need to be loved or respected or treated with dignity. That place that gives you anxiety. How different would you feel about that situation if you really, truly believed? That God saw it. He saw that situation too. I mean, he really saw it. And you knew that he saw it. And that he understood with compassion how much that situation mattered to you. And what if he said to you, not to the you of the room, the general big plural you, but what if he said to you individually, put his arm around your shoulder and he took you aside and he said to you, I see your anxiety about this situation. And I see what you need and I'm going to take care of this. You don't have to take care of yourself in this. Listen, my dear friends, that is what he's saying. And he's saying it to you this morning. Whatever that place of anxiety is in your life, He wants you to know that he sees it, he cares about it, and he's going to take care of you in it. He's not going to leave you out in the cold. Release the situation to him. Trust him to care for the situation and to care for you in the midst of the situation. I'm not saying that God might not have something for you to do as part of the solution. Even Adam and Eve in the garden had to reach out their hands and take the fruit from the trees that God supplied to them, but I'm saying that caring for yourself is not fundamentally your responsibility. That's God's job. It's always been God's job. God loves you, and He cares for you, and you can be at peace. There's a second reason I think that I've tended to hold this promise at arm's length. And that's because sometimes it just seems like it doesn't come true. I mean, God promises to meet all of our needs. What shall I eat? What shall I drink? What shall I wear? And then we all die anyway. I mean, the righteous get sick and die just like the wicked. And the children of God get harmed just like the children of the world. So what can it mean when Jesus says that God knows all of our needs and is going to take care of us? Luke 21, Jesus warns his followers about the trials and the persecutions that will come at the end of the age. And he says to his disciples, they will lay hands on you and they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake but not a hair of your head will perish. What a remarkable thing to say. You'll be killed, but not a hair of your head will perish. All in the same breath. How can this be? How can we be killed and not a hair of our head perish? And the answer is that even in the loss of our physical life, God meets us and cares for us And our deepest needs. Because he himself is the thing we need most. And not even death can take him away from us. Sometimes we think we need the fruit trees of Eden again. And the garden and the fruit trees are good. But what good would the fruit trees in Eden be without the tree of life? The fruit tree. Jesus is the tree of life that is given to us again. He is our real need. And no matter what we lose in this life, and we all will at some point lose this life, no matter what we suffer, no matter what needs aren't met in the ways we think they should be, God always meets our deepest and truest needs in Jesus. So when Jesus says that God knows what we need and he will take care of us, that's always true in Jesus. Jesus is the great provision of God that meets our truest and deepest needs. And for as long as we have Jesus, we have everything that we need. Now let me conclude by pulling all this together and connecting it to joy. As an earthly father like every good earthly parent, I work to raise my kids to become independent of me. It's not good for my kids to live in a state of constant dependence on me as they entered into their adulthood. So as they become increasingly mature adults, I want them to need me less and less. But it's the exact opposite in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Spiritual maturity with God isn't growing old and becoming increasingly independent of him. That's the whole problem of sin. Spiritual maturity is growing young and becoming increasingly dependent on him. And that's why Jesus says we have to become like little children in order to enter into God's kingdom. I was watching a show, a documentary recently, about a bunch of men who were in group therapy, and they were all invited to reflect on traumas from their youth. And after a time, one young man who was struggling with depression told the group, he said, I didn't think of any moment of trauma, but what I remember is that I used to be so happy as a little boy. I used to be so happy, and then I got older, and somehow along the way I forgot what happiness was. And isn't that the truth of how life so often works? Isn't it true that adults watch with envy as little children laugh and play so carefree, so at ease and full of joy? And little children from happy homes are so happy and so carefree, so full of joy because they live with a profound and shameless awareness of their need And a profound and shameless confidence that they are being taken care of. They know they can't take care of themselves, and they don't even really try. They don't worry themselves about taking care of themselves. They just entrust their basic needs to the care of their wise parents, and they get on with the business of play and loving life. And it's the same with our Heavenly Father. God in Christ invites us to be like little children again. To stop fretting about taking care of ourselves. That only leads to anxiety. We can't anyway. Who of us, by worrying, can add even a single hour to our lives? And to entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father who does take care of us. And that's the secret, one of the secrets, of a life full of joy to become like little children again, believing that we are loved and taken care of by God. Father, thank you that you do love us and you take care of us. Thank you that you sent Jesus to bring us back to Eden. We just feel the futility of our own stress trying to take care of ourselves, trying to self-protect, trying to be safe and how it leads to such anxiety. God, give us a vision of you and your assurance of your love in our lives that brings peace to our hearts, knowing that you care for us, you see us, you're providing for us, you love us. Help us to rest in that. And in resting in that, Lord, help us just simply to play enjoy and bring your joy to the world, freed up from all the concerns to bring joy to a world that is so trapped in despair and anxiety. God, thank you for Christ. He is our tree of life. We feast on him and we thank you for him. And in his
0: name we pray, amen.